Hey there, welcome to Self Obsessed, a special holiday edition of the podcast. Hope you guys had an awesome Christmas or Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, Omosoka for my Japanese listeners out there listening via translation by the Oyasoko Corporation. Thank you guys for doing those translations. Currently at 58 million global listeners. So uh, hoping to get to 60 by February of 2019. Anyways, I bring up 2019 because this week's episode is about New Year's resolutions. I have an author, Keith MacArthur. He has a book called Winning Resolutions that just came out. And it's all about how to make rock solid New Year's resolutions. I highly recommend you guys download it now on your Kindle or pick it up at the bookstore. Uh, he also has a very popular website and podcast called myinstructionmanual.com. You can find all of those links there or find his podcast on your local podcast player. But we go into depth about New Year's resolutions and what will make them work, keeping it kind of short this week so that you guys can listen while you're at a coffee shop avoiding your family. Maybe get a pen and paper out, write down a few resolutions, and make a better you. Uh, if you guys have a moment, always appreciate it. If you can rate, review, comment the podcast. You can't comment the podcast. You can comment about the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. You know all the local the local haunts for podcasts. So let's get into it. 2019, around the corner. Let's make some resolutions. Keith MacArthur, winning resolutions. Hey, Keith, how you doing? I'm good, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, we met at the podcast movement, which I don't know if it was for you uh, the first time you'd been there, but that was uh, when I agreed to do this with the Optimal Living Daily guys. That was my eye-opening introduction to the world of podcasting. I had been a a long-time listener podcast, but I had not uh, engrossed myself in the community of podcasters. And that's where we, you and I met at a little happy hour thing. It was, yeah, in, in Philadelphia. And it was my first time at the the conference as well. So I, I thought it was great. My, my podcast has been around for just over a year. So yeah, it was, it was good to learn some tips and tricks and uh, yeah, stuff that I can put to use in my own podcast. So we're talking today about your book, uh, Winning Resolutions, which is uh, we're going to uh, for all of you out there right now between Christmas and New Year's trying to figure out what your New Year's resolutions are, I highly recommend you check out this book. It will give you a guide map on how to best implement your New Year's resolutions so you actually stick to them. Um, and then you have a podcast as well called My Instruction Manual. I do. Uh, you just had Gretchen Rubin on, which I was very jealous about. She's one of my favorites. Yeah, she's great. So I, I actually found her. Uh, she was at the Podcast Movement Conference as well, and uh, she was kind of getting swarmed by her fans, but I was able to get in and uh, ask her to come on my podcast. Actually, it's an interesting story because I'd reached out to her um, months and months before and asked her to come on the podcast. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you found this, Jeff, but when I reach out to people, um, a lot of the time, I just don't hear anything back. Uh, but I, I do appreciate it when people at least get back and say no. So Gretchen got back and she said she was you know, saying no to most interviews. So she originally declined. But then when I asked her at the podcast movement conference, uh, she, she agreed to come on. And I knew that once she agreed there that she would come on because uh, you know, she talks about the four, her four tendencies framework and she's an upholder, meaning that when she makes a commitment <laughs> to herself or to someone else, she'll keep it. So I knew that once she'd agreed there that, uh, that it was set. 
Yeah, Gretchen Rubin, probably best known for her book. Uh, she has the book 10% Happier, which might even be more popular, but the book that I responded 10% Happier to, is Dan Harris, but The Happiness Project is, is what you're thinking of. The Happiness Project. There we go. And, and she has a book called The Four Tendencies, which is a pretty simplistic uh, paradigm about personality types. And, but I found it, incre- I, I found it literally like, almost explained my entire childhood troubles with academics as a child, why I was such a difficult uh, and unruly middle schooler. I almost failed out of middle school because I was, I think, too much of a questioner. Okay. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, what, what, what is your, uh, where are you in the paradigm of four tendencies? I am, um, sorry, I'm also uh, an upholder. So you're an I'm, I'm an upholder. So because I work from I can home, tell by your very organized press kit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, by far the way, my most organized guest. It was terrific. Thank you. Oh, that no, no problem. So yeah, well, this is, uh, yeah. So I'm an upholder, which basically, according to, to Gretchen's framework, means that I'm good at keeping commitments to myself and to others. You're a questioner. So according to what Gretchen says, that means that you're good at commitments only if you really believe in the reason behind them. So in order for you to keep a commitment, you know, to yourself, to keep a resolution or, uh, you know, to show, to, to deliver a script on time, um, you have to really understand that the reason why you're doing it are the consequences. It, it has to be heavily internalized, which as a kid, like growing up, I, I just was never good with anything that was wrote memorization. Right. Uh, you know, things that if you couldn't explain to me why we were learning it, I just didn't want to bother. And then the other two types, just so we'll give people a little, give Gretchen a little shout out here. Uh, there's the rebel, which that's a tough category to be. I, 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 as I read those chapters, I was like, it, you know, it basically means you don't you don't uphold promises to yourself or other people, um, right? And I was like, oh yeah, I know the I know that guy. That's for sure. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are musicians or artist types, and uh, they they often could be kind of geniuses, but tough to work with. Yeah. And then, and because we're because we're talking about resolutions, I'll just mention that one of the things one of the ways that Gretchen identifies uh, rebels are there people who are most likely to. Uh, not believe in resolution. So they, they'll they just say like, January 1 is an arbitrary date. Why would I set a New Year's resolution? It makes no sense. If I want to change something, I'll just change it. So so that's one of the ways that, that stands out. And then the, the fourth group, which she says is the biggest, uh, are obligers. And those are people that are really good at keeping commitments to others, but have trouble keeping commitments to themselves. So uh, you know, you, you'll always deliver your work on time to your boss, but you won't take time to go to the gym or, you know, do, do other things that are for you. Yeah. So for like an, if for someone making a new year's resolution, it would be nice. You should have someone that you meet with every week to make sure you're staying on course so that, cause you'll more likely do it for that other person than you will yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Some kind of accountability partner or even talking about resolutions, even going and, and posting it online. Right. So talking a, about your resolution in Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever will make you, uh, you know, just, just feeling like you've gone public more likely to keep yourself accountable because you feel like other people are watching you. Yeah. That's something you talk about in your book with the idea of public accountability for your resolutions, which I think is really smart. Well, before we dive into resolutions, you know, I I only brought up the Gretchen Rubin archetypes because it's in your book and I, and I thought it was very helpful for me. Give me a, can you give the listeners a little bit of your backstory? When we met, at the podcast movement, you talked a little bit about it, but um, you basically had a near-death experience that led you to this path. I think you had been a, a writer before that, but maybe not. Give me a little bit of how how you got into this sort of self-help space, how you wrote this book, um, and how you started your podcast. Yeah, so um, I've, I've done a lot of different things. I've, I've 
actually had, I would say, a few different careers. So I worked as a journalist for about 10 years. Uh, and then I moved from there and spent about 10 years doing uh, public relations and social media, both both at an agency and, and at a, a company. And so then I decided it was time to move on from the corporate world and start my own thing. And so I started a small publishing company. And the original thing that I was focused on was publishing these anthologies. So um, basically, I went out or I had freelance editors go out and gather rights to uh, great content about, like, there's a book on Muhammad Ali, there's a book on uh, the Beatles. So we just gathered all this content together, um, got the rights, published the anthologies. And, you know, that, that was going okay. But then as the books were launching, I started to get uh, really sick. And it turned out that my kidneys were failing. And basically, if I didn't get dialysis or a transplant soon, I would die. And, you know, the, the good thing about, <laughs> about, like, I literally was dying in that if I didn't get this, I, I, I wouldn't be around. But, you know, luckily for most people in North America, um, you, you're not going to die of, of a transplant, right? If, if you can, um, if you can get dialysis or, or sorry, you're not going to die of, of kidney failure because you can get dialysis or a transplant. And so my little sister came forward and she donated a kidney to me. And, you know, that, that did really change my life. I felt like I'd been given a second chance at life. And after the transplant, you know, I suddenly felt so much better and decided I just wanted to shift. I wanted to stay in the kind of content publishing business, but wanted to shift what I was focused on. So I went from doing these anthologies to focusing on personal development content. So I uh, have a, a blog, uh, podcast, and, and books. And in, in the near future, I'm planning to also do some, some online courses related to these topics. And is this your only job now, or do you have a side profession as well? Are you still working? In this is my job, yeah. You're all in. I'm all in. Yeah. So, you know, I've got the, the good thing about books is those anthologies that I had done uh, before I got sick, obviously they're, they're still selling and I'm getting uh, royalties from them while I'm sort of building up this next thing. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And for, I don't know a lot about kidney transplants. So in, from the time you got sick to the time you had a transplant, how long was that? Well, it's actually kind of more complicated than that because I'd been sick, I think for, for 15 or 16 years before that, like the, the very first time, um, I first learned that I had problems with my kidneys were years and years before. And I went in, I'd started a new job uh, as a newspaper reporter and, uh, there was like company health insurance. And so I went for the insurance test and basically the results of that test came back that I had something wrong with my kidneys. There was like protein in my urine. Mm. And so I started going to nephrologists that, that kind of followed me for years. And, you know, it was always like, eventually someday you might get kidney failure. Um, but it sort of seemed like a really long distance thing way in the future. And then all of a sudden, one day I went in for my appointment and they're like, this is like, we don't know why, but suddenly it's critical. And, uh, yeah, basically then all, all of a sudden, uh, every, everything changed. And within weeks of that, I started to feel sick and tired because basically what's happening is your kidneys are no longer able to take the toxins out of your blood. So they start kind of building up in your body and your brain. And, you know, I really, all of a sudden I'm, I'm in my, my mid forties and all of a sudden I felt like a really old man and I was losing, uh, you know, losing my focus and sort of losing my memory and even just like standing for very long was difficult. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I do, I do say that I really literally felt like, like I was dying. And, uh, but then once I got this transplant, it was almost instantaneously, you can kind of see the chart 
um, that shows my blood work and, and my kidney just like turned around uh, almost overnight to, to where it was um, months before. And for the donor, what's the, I mean, you only have two kidneys, correct? And so you yep. basically are, you're kind of putting yourself at risk. Oh, how, how, I mean, how risky is it for the donor? And, and what does that mean for your sister's sort of taking a long-term gamble as well on her health, right? <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, here, I think the rules are, are different everywhere here in Ontario. I, I'm in Canada, Ontario, Canada. And when you're a kidney donor, you kind of automatically get moved to the top of the list for a, um, you know, for, for a deceased kidney donor, if, if something ever went wrong with her kidney. So there is that little bit of, of backup. Um, but you know, all you really need is one kidney. So, uh, you know, her kidney function is almost back to where it was before the first kidney, uh, before she, she lost the kidney. Um, there's not much difference and, and really like until your kidneys get below about 15% function, uh, they do all their job. So, um, so they can, you know, the, the function can fall for a long time before you really start noticing effects. So she's like completely back to normal now. She actually, interestingly, she actually had more pain after the, the surgery um, than I did. Uh, but it, but it took me a little longer to recover. Well, big shout out to your sister. That's a, that's a big move. Yeah. It's huge. And not to get too in the weeds of kidney transplants, but I am interested. So, so is she, does she get a kidney? She'd only get a new kidney if she's having problems. Otherwise she could have a perfectly healthy life on one kidney. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it's only if there's a problem, then she'd be top of the list. That's right. Just want to make sure I get all the kidney transplant details. <laughs> correct. <laughs> for all my kidney transplant enthusiasts out there. Uh, well, that's interesting. I've had, uh, I recently had Michael Moon on, who's uh, very much into the world of NLP. Mm -hmm. I know you heard of this term third order change, but it sounds like that's what you've had. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, in the way that an alcoholic hits rock bottom or you have a near death experience, it's, it's sort of hitting that near death experience kind of changed the, changed the, the direction of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's something actually that I'm, I'm pretty interested in. A number of the guests that I've had on my podcast have been people that have kind of gone through this. I, I think of it as post-traumatic growth. Um, but, but it is interesting. There's a lot of people in the personal development and self-help space who have gone through these major life crises and come out the other end wanting to, uh, you know, not just change their own life, but to help other people as well. Well, that's interesting. And it kind of is a good segue to your book because it seems like what we're trying to create for ourselves, right? If you have every year, I, I, the holidays are tough for me. Every time this year, I feel partially because I'm out of rhythm with work and I'm staying on my, you know, at, at, a, at a guest room at my, my sister's house or whatever. And, at, you know, I've been, home, I've been away for 10 days. And there's something about the holidays at the end of the year. I always feel a bit depressed. I feel like whatever the goals are I set out for at the beginning of the year, I didn't nail them all. There's a lot of uncertainty about the, you know, I'm a freelancer in the, in, as a film director. So there's just always a lot of uncertainty. Unless you have a project right around the corner, it can be a, a tough time. Uh, and then, of course, to create a resolution, is you're trying to create that sense of urgency. You almost know when you create these resolutions, you're, you know, for so many of us, it's like, oh, I don't even want to make a resolution because last year I didn't do it. Um, right. So your yeah. book's really great for, in some ways, you're trying to replicate as much as possible, not a third order change, but... How can you hold your feet to the fire? How can you, you know, how can you internalize this change as being kind of uh, rebooting your life? And, you know, and that I think a lot of people feel like the first day of the new year is the day, day to do it. Yeah, and and you know, in terms of just how prevalent resolutions are, 
there's a study that's done every every year, a survey, and about 40% of Americans say they they've set resolutions for the following year. And but the number of resolutions that succeed, uh, according to to one study, it's as low as 12%. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how so many of us set these resolutions and we think of them not as contracts to ourselves, but more just like lottery tickets. They're like a fun wish that if if it came true, it would be great, but we're not really counting on it. Um, and the other thing, if you look at the statistics around resolutions, is that the people who set them the most are people, you know, in their in their twenties. Um, the older you get, the less likely you become to set a resolution. And part of me wonders if that's just because we've tried so many times and failed at it that we just eventually get to the the point where we decide what's the point. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a big New Year's resolution guy, and, and my biggest problem is that I'll start off with like two or three things I want to change. And then I have a list of nine things I want to change. <laughs> and, and I, cause I've done a lot of, you know, research in this space. I'll even, you know, all right, I'm going to have these seven habits each morning, you know, and, and, and I get lost in the, it's, it's you know, sort of a overloaded with good intentions, but it's interesting. I, I'm actually surprised that only 40% of people are actually <laughs> attempting to uh, do something better for them, their lives each year. But and, and again, like I think for people in their twenties, it's it's more like in the sixties. But then by the time you get up to, you know, over sixty, it's down to it's down to the twenty, like twenty percent or something like that. So it really does decline over time. And and the interesting thing is that otherwise, the the research kind of shows that that nothing else really affects it. So no matter where no matter where you live in in the U.S. or um, what your you know race or or wealth level is like none of that really seems to affect resolutions. The one thing that affects it is your is your age. Interesting. So, have you talked to a lot of people that have set resolutions and succeeded? Like for me, uh, there's a book called The Power of Habit. I don't know if you've come across that book by Charles Dureg. Yeah, yeah. That was the book that changed it for me. It was like, oh, it's not enough to just have this massive resolution sitting out there, um, but it's more about what can I, what kind of habits can I set for myself each day and. You you bring up the example of the flossing the tooth. You know, mm-hmm. don't yeah. don't even commit to flossing all your teeth every morning. If that was your resolution, for instance, it was just floss your front right tooth every morning. And by just having that tiny little habit trigger, you'll do you'll you'll you know you'll brush all your you know you'll floss all your teeth. And as a writer, I'm always like you know they say it's not the writing that's tough; it's the sitting down to write that's tough. And if you right. just start, you'll you'll work for a couple hours. Right. Um, and, and another, I mean, another example like that, that, uh, you know, because you're, you're in, uh, you know, LA, the scene is uh, something where, where Jerry, that I talk about in the book is Jerry Seinfeld, this idea of, um, you know, realizing that to be a better comic, he had to write jokes every day. And the, the secret to, to doing that is, is to just sit down and write. So every day, um, even if he just sat down for a minute, he'd put an X on his calendar if he did a little little writing of, of uh, jokes for his monologue. And uh, his goal was just to put an X every day. So yeah, so one of the things you, you can do, as you say, is just to minimize the resistance uh, when you're trying to, to set a new habit so that it's as easy as possible. And then once you actually have it as a habit that you're doing every day, that's when you start actually doing it in a way that makes a meaningful difference. It's funny. I I did a stamp special a couple of years ago, and the beginning of that year, I had set up. I literally my New Year's resolution. I'd have to find it somewhere, but I wrote down, "Don't break the chain." The top of my mm. uh, little you know one page PDF I created for myself, and that's that's the Jerry Seinfeld quote. Right. Yeah. Was that he just worked every day for an hour on a joke, 
X in the calendar and the, and the, and the chain he's referring to is that chain of X's in his calendar. He just was like, he was just ruthlessly committed to not breaking that, that habit cycle. Exactly. And I use, I don't know if you use a habit tracker in your iPhone, but I have a couple of those that I use that's sort of the same philosophy. I, I don't. I mean, so, so basically as I researched the book, what I found is that, you know, I kind of bucketed things into these big categories and so, so habits is one of them. I think that, that focusing on habits that's, that's an understanding how they work is one of the areas where you can really make a difference in terms of your resolutions. Um, the others, and we can get into the, these in more detail, but the others are taking the time to really set and plan the right resolutions. One of the things I, I really believe is that you can set a resolution that will turn out in success, and then you can set a resolution that has zero chance of success. And it's all about kind of how you word it and when you start it and, and putting the work into planning it. Another area is around willpower and you know the, the science around willpower has become sort of controversial, but there certainly are some things that we can do to bolster our self-control. And so there's a big part of the book is around tips on how to do that. And then you know the last section is around how to change your environment to sort of um, make it as easy as possible to, to do your resolution. So you know things like uh, if you're trying to not eat sugar, um, don't bring ice cream into your house. So, so those, those are kind of the big buckets. And then throughout the book, I talk about resolutions that I set for myself as a sort of uh, research project in terms of writing the book. And then I have some stories from a number of other people who went through resolutions of their own. And so, you know, whether it's uh, someone who lost a bunch of weight or quit smoking or uh, got their family out of debt, sort of take people through the steps that they followed and what worked for them in achieving their their resolutions. Well, it's interesting with resolutions too, because the drop-off is palpable. I don't know if you've ever, I have actually been out of the habit of going to the gym, but I used to go to the gym every day. And I always mm -hmm. would be surprised on January 2, I'd walk into the gym and be like, why is every machine completely occupied? Right, and right. Out of and, then by Jan and then by February 2, the gym is completely back to its normal cycle. Uh, so you see that 40 to, you know, that, that, that 12% <laughs> that, that really hold to it. And I guess if everyone held to their new year's resolutions, the gyms would be overfilling, overfilled with people. So apparently there's people that are falling off all the time, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like if I'm thinking about creating, you know, new year's is a couple of days away, let's say I want to create some resolutions for myself. I've told you like, you know, in years past, sometimes I overcomplicate it for myself. What, what are some like best practices that you think from your book? Cause you have sort of these sort of 35 kind of best tenants and are there like five things that if we were to impart upon people today, obviously reading your book would be one of those steps. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if I'm like, all right, I, I want to succeed, you know, I'm a questioner. Mm -hmm. What are some things that I could do next year? Let's say if I wanted to drop 10 pounds next year, I want to get better about having a daily riding habit and I want to save more money. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that I would say just based on what you said about how you used to do it, where you'd have this big, huge list is that that that's just too much, right? I think that the most important thing is when you're setting your resolutions, you have to make sure that they're practical. Um, there's certainly research that shows that the more you believe that you will achieve your resolution, the more likely you are to actually achieve it. So, you know, you mentioned three things there. I think the first thing I would say is, is really um, stop and think about whether you really are completely committed to all three of those. And, and if you're not, there's the risk that maybe all three will fail. And so 
is it better to just focus on one or two? Um, and, and only you know that, right? There's no right or wrong answer, but I think that certainly right. if you've got uh, if you've got a dozen of them, that's you know that's probably too many. Another thing that's really important when you're setting your resolutions is is to make sure they're what I call peaceful resolutions, and that means that they can't conflict with each other and they can't conflict with your core values. So, you know, one of the things that that I really believe and I talked about in my first self help book is the importance of connecting with, uh, you know, identifying your own your own core values. And once you do that work, decisions in your life become a lot easier because it kind of becomes your, your, your guidepost, your compass to, to making those decisions. Um, and so your resolutions really have to be in line with that. And here's an example of, of resolutions that, that might not be peaceful. Um, let's say that you decide you want to get fit. And so you make a resolution that you're going to go out for a 40 kilometer bike ride each Saturday morning. But you also have a resolution that you want to spend more time with your family. Um, you know, maybe those two things aren't in line because that's the time you you could be playing with your kids, um, but it's also the time that you're you're planning to go biking. So it's as I said, it's important that those two things uh, line up. Right. Well, it's funny you see talk about core values. That's I, I'm a big fan of the Franklin Covey. Mm-hmm. That was probably my intro after college was the Franklin Covey system, and it's been a long time since I've had that. I don't know. Did you ever use the Franklin Covey planner back in the day? I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah, I I I, I kind of miss that planner. Like, even though everything's digital now, and you have that, you have that card. Yeah, the card that you move to the day. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it was like yeah. you know the, your seven core principles. And oh yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff. I feel like I have a lot of listeners that are comedians or cynical. When you say core values, like, is that something that you have written down as a list? Is that just something you know about yourself? I mean, obviously, like spending more time with your kids and your family shouldn't be that challenging to remind yourself of, but some people maybe do, you know, if you're a workaholic or something. Um, for you, do you have like a core values system written down somewhere or is it just kind of like guiding principles that you have internalized? Uh, yeah. So I, I do have it written down. It's something that uh, as sort of an, you know, an extra that I, that I did with my first book, 18 Steps to Own Your Life. I have a, uh, a tracker in there that people can use to kind of identify their core values. And it's in- interesting that you mentioned Franklin Covey because Part of it is based on uh, Stephen Covey's idea of one of the things he talks about in his book is to imagine yourself at your own funeral and to think about what other people are saying about you. And he talks about that being a really great way of, you know, really helping yourself to understand your values and knowing what's important to you. Although that doesn't work for everybody because I, I have a 14 year old son and I mentioned it to him and he's like, what do I care? What people say about me at my funeral, I'll be dead. So, you know, that, that trick doesn't work for anyone, but he a rebel? <laughs> he's, I think he's a questioner. It's interesting actually. Um, okay. All right. It, yeah. And this is the book, Seven Habits, Seven right? Habits, yeah. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is, which is one of the pillars of this, of this uh, self-help publishing industry, I kind of feel like. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, I think it's, it's one of the, the really good ones. It's one of the ones that, that's full of, of good information. I think. I think there's a lot of bad self-help books out there, but but to me that would be one of the ones that. Uh, no, you wait. You say there's a couple of bad no, self-help a, books. There's out a there? lot of bad ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that is really interesting. I mean, it is. Maybe you could answer for the media because you're in publishing. How come it doesn't seem like there's a single self-help book that has anything lower than a four and a half star rating on Amazon? Is that is there some? Is everyone gaming the system? I've always found that to be. I'll read a book and be like, how did this thing get no negative reviews? 
I don't that, you know that that's an interesting question. Would you say that that's only like that for self help, or is that for isn't that like that for for all books on Amazon? Well, maybe you're right because maybe every book has its core listener readership that's going to give them good reviews, and then only once a book takes off could you get like the meaning like your book almost has to be successful and then not good to actually lower the Amazon score so that you're you're getting people that bought the book and then are are actually disappointed with it. Although there's probably a little bit of confirmation bias, right? If you spend the time to read an entire book, you kind of want to feel good about that decision. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I was hoping you could just just, just smash apart the entire <laughs> Amazon publishing uh, I don't paradigm know. I mean, for me in, in one fell swoop. I know that uh, that certainly as you know, as an, an author, um, it's it's a good practice to try and get people who have read your book to, to you know, if, if they send you an, a note saying, I really liked your book, it's, it's a good idea to ask them to go and leave a review. So there are ways of trying to encourage more people to, to do it. But I, I actually believe that Amazon does a pretty good job of cracking down to try and make sure people aren't leaving a bunch of phony reviews. So, um, you know, if you have, if you haven't actually bought your book through Amazon, it doesn't show up as a verified reviewed. So all the ones that were actually bought through them show up first. Um, if, if, too many show up from kind of the same link. Amazon gets gets worried and thinks you're gaming the system. So there are things that they do to try mm. and, and keep the, the reviews more legit. It's interesting. Yeah, as I'm I'm exploring this space a lot, I think there's I'm noticing that there's definitely a subset of people that are just very into self help and self improvement. I'm definitely one of those people. But uh, you know, I'll kind of read almost every not every book, but you know, every book that you kind of every year there's four or five books you kind of hear about. Like the the willpower instinct is the book I was thinking about when you talked to about the idea of willpower and how willpower is a finite finite resource and you have more of it in the morning than you do in the afternoon. And some of the things that you talk about in your book, I feel like tap into that that insight of, you know, you you really need to when I particularly and I think maybe this is part of it, when you're in your twenties, you ha- it feels like you have unlimited time, resource, and energy. Like that the thought of having 10 resolutions <laughs> wouldn't seem foolhardy. Yeah. But as you get to be, you know, I'm now over 40, I'm like, maybe I can do one, maybe two resolutions this year. Cause you just kind of know, like, yeah, there's just to change is really hard. And you're probably lucky to get across one, maybe two changes per year. Um, and that when you, if you have try to take on more than that, you're probably likely to fail because you'll get disappointed that you're not following your habit to, I don't know, drink more water every day. And that will probably chip away at your confidence and your willpower to achieve the weight loss goal. So yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know if I would say one a year because I might I might suggest a different approach, which is yeah. rather than just thinking of January one as the day that you're setting your resolutions, break it up. Right. So uh, instead of instead of setting three or four resolutions on January one, maybe you set one every three months. One of the things I, I talk about in the book is that there's some research that you know that, that there are really good. Well, there's both good and bad reasons for setting a resolution on January 1. So one of the the bad reasons, for example, is that a lot of us go out and uh, overindulge the night before. So we're not really setting ourselves up for success the next morning. Um, another downside of, of New Year's Day is that we, we're not necessarily, you know, a, a lot of people just set the resolutions like on New Year's Eve. So they're not really taking the time to do the planning and and set their lives up for success. Um, but one of the things that that is good about New Year's is this thing called um, temporal landmarks, and the idea that something like New Year's Day or a Monday or your birthday or when you go away on vacation 
they have this um, this kind of psychological effect that make you more likely to want to make a change in your life. Mm. And they do that for two reasons. One is that um, they kind of serve as a marker that separates uh, our past, pe- present, and future self. So there's some psychology work that that shows that um, I don't think of my past self as the same as my current self or my future self. So I almost think of these as like three distinct entities. And so if you think of like New Year's Day as a marker, it's a time where 2018 was my old self and 2019 is my you know new and improved self. Um, so that that's one reason there's a psychological marker. And another reason is that things like uh, vacations or you know often that that week of downtime between Christmas and New Year's that, that a lot of people have kind of serves as a time where we can step back from the day-to-day minute details of our life and we kind of see the big picture. So mm. I think of this as as forest time. So it's time where instead of seeing the trees, we're seeing the forest. And when we can step back and see the big picture, that really helps us um, orientate orientate ourselves for for sort of long-term goals and long-term thinking. So, um, you know, for those reasons, January 1 is a really good time to set resolutions. Um, But one of the things I talk about in the book is that you can get a lot of those same effects uh, from, you know, a Monday, for example. So if you really take the time to think of of the weekend as your your break between your past and, and future self, and take the weekend as the time to kind of get out of the details and have some some forest time, um, you know, setting a resolution for next Monday might work just as well. Now that doesn't work for everyone. If you're if you're really busy at home with little kids or whatever, um, you know, it might be hard to get out of the details on the weekend. But uh, but that that's one approach that you can take. So 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 again, I would say um, instead of trying to set all your resolutions for for January one, think about what you can realistically accomplish over maybe the next three months. Set that as a resolution, and then and then set another one. Uh, set, you know, set them every every little while. I think that's a really good idea. Is the idea of just don't even overwhelm yourself with the idea that this is what I'm going to do all year long. It's just between now and three months from now, I'm going to accomplish this. I think that's a really good strategy. You know, I think it's really important. And it, you know, so often I've noticed that I've had friends that are like they almost felt like they had to move, change cities to change their lives, and how important it is that different environment. Or, you know, you have a friend that's like, you know, I'm just sick of the way I am right now. I'm leaving Chicago. I'm moving to Seattle and I'm starting over. And and often with a lot of success, because you can, you sort of shake all the physical reminders of your bad habits. You sort of shake maybe bad friend groups or people that are holding you back. Um, what are some things that people can do? Like, I, I'm just, this is a, like a stupid thing would be like, maybe changing the way you dress in the new year or changing the the configuration of your office or something to physically because this idea of transformation and it's, I mean, ultimately what this show really deals with, and I'm sure on your podcast too, is it's the idea of can we change right at the core of it all? Mm-hmm. Can, can I change to be a better person? Uh, man, is it hard to change and, and how often do we fail? But, you know, are there things that people can do to set up kind of the physical reminders that I'm, I'm doing something to change? I mean, maybe it's as simple as posting your resolutions I've done that before, and I've been, been, I've been embarrassed when friends come over. But I'll I'll have my New Year's resolutions like on my my pin board, right? And then of course your friends come over, like what what's this? You, you well, this is a little woo woo, man. Um, are there things that you recommend for that? Like just adopting a new, you know, it's like it's almost like they talk about uh, adopt a new posture, and you'll have more confidence. Yeah, I, I would say uh, that that it's a good idea, but that they should be related 
to the resolution. So, I mean, one thing, one thing we know is that the research shows that if you make one positive change in your life, you're, you're likely to make more positive changes. So people who start going to the gym more often, uh, also become more likely to, um, quit smoking to, uh, I'm trying to, trying to think of, of the list, but, but there's a bunch yeah, eating better, but, but there's even like other things that aren't related to health that, that tend to, um, to, to improve. But, but I think the key is to start with things that are directly related to resolution. So, you know, one of the things that, that I talk about in the willpower chapter is that there are a bunch of things that you can do to kind of bolster your willpower, but the, the best way, the most reliable way to, uh, leverage willpower is to avoid having to use it. So if you structure your environment to kind of get rid of all of the temptations, uh, so that you don't have to rely on, on willpower, then, you know, that, that's obviously a, a great start. So thing, things like I, I mentioned earlier, like, uh, if you're trying to give up sugar, not having uh, ice, ice cream in your house. And then the flip side is also to do things that make the, the behaviors you want to do a lot easier. So if you want to get up and start running every morning, um, make sure that your, your running stuff is, you know, clean and ready and, and right beside you. Uh, some people even talk about, you know, putting on their, their gym stuff and, uh, going to bed, wearing it so that they can just get up and, and go for, go to the gym right away. Right. So, um, so I think what you want to do, I think there are big ways to structure your environment, but, but make them as connected as possible to your, your resolution. Yeah. The, that is like when I've fallen off, I'm a, a pretty regular runner. And when I want to get myself back into it, it's just simply lay out the shoes, lay out the, the shorts. Um, I'm known for wearing pretty short shorts here in Los <laughs> Angeles, apparently I'm told. So they're pretty small, the shorts, but, uh, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it has such a profound effect. I mean, you talk a little bit about having like just having an organized desk and an organized office. It just, it provides clarity to the brain. Um, because when you have a cluttered desk, it almost feels like I am sure you feel this. It feels like I'm, it creates a sense of clutter in the brain and I fall off the focus of my goals. Yeah. And, and you're, you, I mean, you're referring to this one uh, study that was done that I talk about in the book where um, people were, were brought into these diff, these offices and asked to do a, a, a task in the office. And then after the task, uh, they were given a, a choice, I think of a, a healthy snack or an unhealthy snack. And then they were also asked to donate uh, to a charity and the people who, and the, the groups were divided into clean offices and, and messy offices or disorderly offices. And the people who were in the, the tidy offices were much more likely to choose the healthy snack and to give more to, to charity. Now, one of the things um, that I will note and, and that I mentioned kind of throughout the book is that social psychology research in general has come under a lot of scrutiny over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some of the, the most famous studies that I talk about in the book, like, um, like the, the marshmallow test and, uh, and Roy ba Baumeister, who's like, you know, the biggest scientist around willpower, his, his research around, uh, uh, around willpower, a lot of that stuff's kind of come under question. So, you know, all of this social psychology research you take with, with a grain of salt. Um, but so, so a clean desk might not work for everyone, but I, but I do believe that there is this idea of, an orderly environment being able to to help us make better choices. Yeah, there's a going back to the Charles Duhigg book, The Power of Habit. He talks about the cornerstone habits, which is what you're I think mm -hmm. talking about. Like you know, if you exercise every morning, you'll probably be more productive at work, and you'll yeah, it has a it has sort of a cascading effect. The you know Tim Ferriss always talks about making your bed every morning, and yeah. I, I will say like you know for the I, I feel like that's a 
not making your bed is something I, I feel like it's like for my younger listeners, like people that are in their teens or 20s. That is the number one thing that I have found. That if you just make your bed in the morning, you just are pushing a butterfly effect of positive change throughout your day. And it sounds so trite. And I was never, I never made my bed, not until like I was like in my 30s. And now it's a part of my daily ritual. And I think that could be, you know, for those of you out there that are just don't even feel like making any habit changes or whatever, everything seems overwhelming. If you just resolve to make your bed every morning, you'd be surprised by how that has a positive effect throughout your year. There's a great, uh, I think, is his name, um, is it Bill McRaven? There's a great YouTube commencement speech of the the, the U.S. general who led the um, oh, yeah. the, the attack on bin Laden and, um, and, and has recently been in the news because he's kind of gone after uh, the president a little bit. But uh, yeah, he, he gives an amazing commencement speech where he talks about the, the importance of, of making your bed and how achieving that one thing in the morning will, will set you up for success throughout the day. Well, they say bin Laden never made his bed and that's why he turned out so evil. <laughs> no, that's, not, that's not what he says. Yeah. Um, but I will put, uh, I'll put a YouTube link uh, to that speech because it's one I've watched before. And it's, I'm sure you've, uh, being a Canadian, I'm sure you've tracked uh, Jordan Peterson's meteoric rise. Uh, and he's sort of the grumpy uncle self-help guy, you know, sort of like stand up straight, make your bed, you know. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's also uh, very, very controversial because a lot of his, his research is, uh, or, you know, qu- quite uh, mis- misogynist, I would say. So um, I think he's, he's a guy yeah. you need to, to be careful of. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I find him fascinating to listen to. Um, I'm a big fan of that kind of intellectual dark web, Sam Harris, a lot of those kind of yeah. this sort of uh, long form philosophical conversation movement. And, uh, but I find Peterson fascinating because he's such a, I feel like there's a, Good. There's like a lot going on in that in that, <laughs> that guy's brain, and he has a lot of great. Uh, he seems to be incredibly well researched, uh, but you know he he seems to really delight in uh, poking the PC establishment. Uh, but there there's he seems to be connecting, and I'm always interested with like what is that tapping into? This sort of uh, people really seem to be relishing this like simple advice of like a grumpy uncle, just like ah oh, yes yeah. Make your bed, stand up straight, speak with clarity. Um, it's not a very good Jordan Peterson impression. but <laughs> So, all right. So people are a couple of days away there. I think I'm going to post this like uh, with a couple of days before the new year. Do you feel like everyone should have to have a resolution? I mean, what about that 60% that doesn't have a resolution? Are those people just perfect? I feel like every so often, or I feel like one thing that runs through my, the, the, the narrative of my brain, right, is that. Oh man, like there's just, just, there's just people out there that just, they sort of skate through life and they seem to just be wired in the correct way to get everything done. And they have five kids and a job and they get everyone to practice on time. Yeah. It's it's a good question. I mean, I, I kind of feel like if, if I'm writing these personal development books, I probably should be saying that, that everybody should go out and, and make all these changes to their lives. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I, I kind of feel and maybe maybe it'll be my my downfall in in this industry, but I kind of feel like it's it's a personal thing. Like I feel like some people are ready to make changes and know they want to make changes, and then other people are, are happy with their lives as they are. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. So I I certainly don't think that everybody should go out and and make um, resolutions. And I also think that New Year's Day isn't necessarily the right time for everybody. So um, you know I think if you if you want to make a change. Um, and and New Year's is a good time for you to do it. Then then by all means. But uh, 
but I think it's important, you know, only a couple of days away from, from New Year's, do make sure that you're, you're taking the time to set the right kind of, of resolution and do make sure that you're taking time to, to plan for that resolution. So one of the things that I think is really important that I talk about is to kind of anticipate all of the pitfalls that can get in the way of your success. So, um, you know, whenever we, obviously there's, there's reasons why resolutions fail and that's because we, we get tempted to do some, to make a different choice, to do something different. And so if you can kind of start, um, by anticipating those things at the beginning, then you're more likely to succeed. So, you know, a, lo a lot of the, well, I get into all kinds of different resolutions in the book. Um, certainly the most common resolutions that people make are around health and weight loss. So mm -hmm. some of what I, quite a bit of what I talk about in the book is related to that. So, you know, just the example of, uh, you're setting a resolution to, um, to lose weight and to, uh, and one of the ways you want to do that is to, to kind of cut most of the sugar out of your diet, but you know that in three weeks you're going to your niece's birthday party and you're probably going to be offered a piece of cake. So before you even start the resolution, think about like, what is your response going to be then? Are you going to say, um, that that is okay to have it that time and that's fine. Or are you going to say, you don't want to have it then? Cause the, the danger really is for you to say, I'm just not going to have any at all. You get to that day, um, you take the cake and then you feel like crap and you go home and, you know, you find that stale box of, of girl guy cookies at the back of your cupboard and you, you eat that as well. Um, and then you just feel like everything's off the rails and, and you kind of give up on your resolution. So I think anticipating your, your, uh, those pitfalls and doing what, uh, researchers call if then planning is really important. So mm. if this happens, then I'll do that. Um, that that's really critical for resolution success. It's interesting. Why are we, why does that so often happen? Right. If you set a resolution to, I'm not going to drink this whole month or yeah, I'm going to eat better. And then one mistake turns people into a kind of an, I'll call it an, Oh, fuck it mode of just, um, that's it. Forget it. I'm just going to throw the whole thing away. And, and people have like, is it a, it almost seems like a shame spiral of some sort. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the guys that I interviewed in the book, um, he's lost over 200 pounds now, but, uh, originally he was, he'd put on so much weight that he was uh, in a wheelchair and he had a bad back and, um, he would each week, he would kind of try and, and set a resolution. And then, um, somewhere in the middle of the week, he would go out and do a McDonald's binge and he'd like bring Big Macs and fries and chicken McNuggets and like this giant, giant pack of McDonald's and just eat them on his bed. And then, wow. you know, when he did that, he just felt like, okay, this week's gone. Now I can look forward to next week. And so it was almost like he was using that as an excuse to, to stymie each week. Um, so eventually he got himself under control, but you no, know, that certainly is something that happens that we feel like, um, like one little stumble, uh, means the end of everything. And so when you're, when you're doing that, if then planning the, the idea that you fail, like, what do I do? If I don't succeed, if I break this resolution, if I um, have a, a cigarette uh, when I'm trying to quit smoking, how you respond to that is is really critical in terms of your success. Um, there, there's one woman that I interviewed in the book who tried to give up smoking, and she, uh, you know, went through like days of nicotine withdrawal because she was a multi pack a day smoker, um, and she did it cold turkey. And then, um, you know, once she was starting to get through that, she found this old. Uh, half smoked cigarette and started smoking it and, Ugh. you know, re realized that she, you know, it tasted horrible. Like she liked the nicotine rush, but then, um, almost like within an hour of that, she started getting like shivers again. And, and it just kind of reminded her that she didn't want to go back. And, and, you know, so even though she, she'd broken it, 
um, for her, she was able to use that as a, as a, um, a point of, of learning to, to go on and stick to her resolution. So yeah, that's really important. Yeah, smoking and, and is a nasty one. And, um, you know, I've quit smoking twice. I haven't smoked in forever now, but, um, I don't know if you ever smoked cigarettes in your life, but it's, uh, there's, it, it's challenging because it's one of those habits, right? That if you give yourself too much slack, you won't stick to it. You know, if you're, for instance, if you were too forgiving to yourself on a smoking, like say your resolution is to quit smoking this year, if you give yourself too much of a, well, if I have one cigarette, I'll, I'll, that'll, I won't beat myself up over that. The problem with some, some habits, right? It is a little bit of an all or nothing. Um, drink, you know, AA is, you know, for, for all the controversy surrounding whether, you know, the methodology behind AA, it's sort of an all or nothing proposition, right? It's, it's your day starts today. If, you know, and if you break, if you have a drink six years from now, you start back at zero, which sometimes I feel like can be, you know, I feel like does that, you know, for someone that ha- hasn't drank for seven years and then they're back to zero, does that throw them to a spiral of, well, then screw it. I'm just going to start drinking again. Have you done a lot of research in that area? You know, I, not in great detail, but one of the things that's really interesting about the AA philosophy is that although it is forever, there's so much focus on one day at a time, right? So you're-, right. you're taught to never think of forever you're you're thinking of staying sober for this one day um so so i think that that you know it, it makes a psychological difference one of the things that i talk about in the book is the importance of in terms of most resolutions um setting shorter term goals is better so rather mm. than thinking you know you want to lose 30 pounds in 2019 you might be much better off just trying to lose you know a, a pound a week for the next 2 months and then once you accomplish that, to, to set your goal again and, and move on. Um, there, there's, now, now, again, this isn't going to be the same for everyone, but in general, there's research that suggests that shorter-term goals are, are more likely to be kept. Yeah, I think that's why we, we talked uh, a guest recently named Seamland about intermittent fasting and the idea of kind of cutting your, your feeding window. It's a terrible term, but <laughs> the window which you eat. Um, you know, putting that into a smaller window kind of constricts the amount of snacking and grazing and do it throughout the day. Cause that, that, that can be kind of, I think the reason that diet's been so successful and you see it so uh, touted in the self-help communities, cause I think it, it's a pretty simplistic daily way to look at a diet that can, that's easy to follow. I mean, I think the problem with diet is just that there's so many places that you can, you know, a, a week of going out to dinner or there's just so many places that it can tempt you to break your healthy eating habits. Yeah. And, you know, everything that you mentioned just reminds me of, of another tip to mention, but, you know, related to, to dieting and all, it's also the case with uh, things like trying to get out of debt or to save money is that tracking is just so important, right? So um, people who keep, who write down everything they eat, even if they're not necessarily, um, you know, trying to eat less, just the simple act of writing down what you eat mm. makes you, um, much more likely to eat healthy. And the same with, with keeping track of your finances, you're less likely to spend money on something that, you know, the next day you might not, not feel is a, is a good investment. As someone who hates the idea of tracking, I think it's cause I'm wired a little ADD. Um, I heard a good tip about this. Maybe it was in your book and it's, uh, but it's, if you don't like the idea of having to write it down every day, just take a picture of every meal. Um, not in the annoying Instagram, take a picture of your food way, but just Take a quick meal of everything you eat down from like two gummy bears to 
a smoothie to a full meal. And I think same with finances, just take a quick picture of your, your receipt. If, if writing it down seems like one thing too many, because for me a little bit, like with running, I've never been into the Apple watch or the, the Garmin tracking thing. Cause it actually creates, it makes it feel like homework to me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes the joy out of it, but everyone's, and again, that's just goes to how everyone's wired so differently that for some people, the, tr- the tracking does create a sort of, it almost creates a bit of a, a pause in the brain, right? It, it takes you out of an impulsivity mode into a thoughtful decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. But you said you said you do use some tracking apps, right? Well, I do. I do for the habits. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll do a daily tra- habit tracker and I try to keep that to like three to five things tops. Um, you know, I obviously I keep a daily task list, which we've talked about at yeah. nauseum in, in previous podcasts, but um yeah, so there's certain kind of tracking. I mean, you have to do. For me, if I had to like t- keep a food journal every day, I'd probably be less likely to stay on a diet. Um, so for me, I like I prefer like simplistic principles, whether that be, you know, no carbs and eat between the hours of twelve and eight. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, everyone's different, and that's you know another thing that uh, that I think is so important is, is you have to know what works for you. And I think again, this might be. Something that'll be my my uh, limitation when it comes to to being um, doing well in, in self in self help, but uh, you know, so many people who write these self help books sort of say that there's one path to success and you have to follow this exactly. But I really believe that you know you have to tailor your your plan for what works for you. So let's say someone like so. I'll, first of all, I'll take you through the top three here that of of the listeners here that the resolutions of people that at least listen to this show are trying to um, are trying to break. Uh, the number one is uh, weight loss. Number two is to reduce drinking mm-hmm. or quit drinking, some people said. And then number three was to get better with their money. So it's kind of vague, right? That's not like getting better with your money is a little too vague. Probably you would say that's not a, a specific enough goal, right? Um, what are some like kind of, uh, let's say they download your book on Kindle right now and there's only a couple of days. They don't want to read the whole thing. Is there a chapter they should go to to kind of get a quick start? And is there amount? Of, is there a certain amount of time that, like, let's say you're at home right now, you're listening to this podcast, and you're surrounded by your family, and you can get yourself to a Starbucks with some headphones for ninety minutes. Is that a, is that enough time? You think to kind of sit down and reflect about your goals? And and, and are there, are there certain things in those categories of drinking, eating, and finance that you might recommend as a a good place to get started? Yeah. So, um, so right at the, towards the end of the book, um, like I wanted to, to have general, uh, general resolution tips. So those are kind of throughout the book, but then at the end, I've got specific sections with tips on each of the most common kinds of resolutions. So there are tips there on, uh, you know, how to, how to quit a bad quote unquote bad habit, like, like smoking or drinking. There's tips on, on weight loss and on eating better. Um, and, and there's tips on, on finances and, and, you know, there's, there's and some other areas like improving your, um, relationships and making yourself better organized. So, um, so there, yeah, there is a chapter that gets into detail with, with some of that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, if people just, just get the book, one of the things I've included at the end is an appendix of, uh, you know, what you mentioned, these 35 tips that I, that I felt are kind of the most important, um, tips to help you yeah. with the resolution. So I would say, you know, start, start there. Um, there, there's that cheat sheet at the end. Um, and then, and then look at the tips that are specific to your, resolution. Yeah, because I think your book's a good resource just to kind of get some ideas on how to optimize resolution making. 
And I, I don't want people to get too overwhelmed because, you know, you, sometimes when you download a whole book, it was like, well, I don't want to get started right away. Let me, I have to finish this entire book before I get started. And I think you would advocate, um, hey, use the book as a resource to kind of help come up with a couple of resolutions. And then I think your book's a really good thing to read as you're, you've committed to a couple of things, read it as the, as the new year unfolds, because it'll keep you on task and remind you the biggest, I think, challenge is that, like you said, it's New Year's Day or it's New Year's Eve. You make a couple of resolutions and by that Friday of that week, you forgot that you even made them. And I think by just having your book on your Kindle or a copy by your bedside table, it's a good little uh, refresher guide to keep you on course throughout the year. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the research um, around habits and, and willpower, th- those are good things to, uh, you know, especially the, the willpower, it's kind of good to help as you, as you move forward and, and struggle. Um, so, so probably, um, you know, the section on how to set and plan the right resolution is maybe the, the right place to start um, just before you, you go. But, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that people should, uh, should wait, and especially if they, if they want to make big changes in their lives. Any, any little bit of information is gonna, from the book is going to help. And the more of the, the tips you can kind of internalize, I think the more uh, it'll help you. Well, Keith, this has been awesome. I want to know, I want to end on this. Do you have any New Year's resolutions this year? Huh. You know, I don't. I, I'm not going to set n- resolutions for, for New Year's Day. Um, <laughs> I, I have- uh, It has written as writing, are you, the, are you the plumber with the leaky pipes? Has, is writing an entire book about New Year's resolution uh, worn you out on the topic a little bit? No, it's not that. It's just more that for me- um, I feel like New Year's Day is is not the the time to set them that that's going to work for me. So I right. did set some resolutions as I was was writing the book, and uh, you know I've got some more in mind. But uh, but yeah, just I, I'm going to start them on a, on a Monday as I did with the ones that I that I set during the book, rather than than on uh, on New Year's Day. And, and, and to give you an example, one of them is to uh, you know I. I I found that meditation really makes a difference in my life, mm. but it's something that I have that I struggle with doing as often as I, I need to. I, I've sort of found that there's there's three things for me that really make a difference, just in terms of my overall um, mood and uh, optimism and outlook and how I get ar- along with people around me. And and those are to make sure that I get exercise, to make sure that um, I. I focus on the things that I have in my life to be grateful for. And, and the third is to, to do some mindfulness meditation. And so um, making mindfulness a, a daily habit is, is a resolution that, uh, that I'm going to be starting uh, soon after New Year's. Um, and again, I'm going to use some of the, the tips in the book. So there's a lot of people out there who say that you should meditate for no, no less than 20 minutes a day. Um, when I start, it's, it's going to be uh, you know, two or three minutes a day. And, um, if I go, you know, some days I'll go a lot longer and, and some I won't, but that, that short amount of time, making it a, a tiny habit is going to re- reduce the friction and make it much easier for me to build that, uh, that as a regular habit that I, that I do every single day. Meditation is, is such a common thing that comes up amongst a lot of the people in the health. It, it does seem to be that one habit that everyone knows is so good for you, but it is one of the hardest I think if you're type A, like, you know, I feel pretty type A when I wake up in the morning, all I want to do is start getting things done. And that idea of like, wait, the first thing I'm going to do is just basically sit still for five to 20 minutes. 
so hard to do, but um, I totally recommend. I you know I got into it through Headspace, yeah, and they start you off at five minutes a day. That's a five minutes a day for a whole year is better than none. No, no minutes a day for a year because I think you know Sam Harris will talk about how he does twenty minutes in the morning and twenty minutes in the afternoon, and that kind of level of uh, I guess high achieving meditation can be almost discouraging. And I don't think you have to set the, the target that high. Yeah. And I think that for, for me and for other people that I talk to, one of the things that's so hard about setting meditation as a, as a daily habit is that it doesn't necessarily feel good while you're doing it, right? Like you don't, it, it's not like you're mm. like, it's having some magical effect while it's happening. And sometimes, you know, you get, sometimes it can make me feel pretty bad because things start to come up while I'm, while I'm sitting. But it, but I definitely know that that when I don't do it, my my mood will for a while my mood will change, and that if I start doing it again, then I'll I'll get myself into a better place. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's it's a, a tough habit to start, but if you just go to I think I think Headspace is probably the easiest intro place to go. Sam Harris has a pretty good app on it too. It's a little more advanced, kind of explains some of the philosophy behind it. Um, but I, I completely will co-sign on the idea of exercise as a daily habit, even if it's just a walk outside with your dog or something. Just I feel better when I start my day with exercise. And then I don't know if you keep, if you've ever come across that book, the five minute journal. I, I have not read it. It's just a real simple, it, it, you know, it, but it's basically the idea is just for five minutes in the morning, just write down things you're thankful for and gratitude and, and practicing gratitude. It sounds a little woo woo, but if you just do, I think you're spot on with those three things. You, if you are, you're not able to figure out a, a resolution for this New Year's. I'd highly recommend just grab one of those three things, try to do it five minutes of gratitude or five minutes of meditation or 15 minutes of brisk walking in the morning. It will have a, what we'll call cornerstone uh, effect on your morning and, and throughout your day. So yeah, yeah. I think those are good. Those are good ones. For, for me, they're, they're certainly things that will, will change my, my brain chemistry for the better. Yeah. So Keith, if we uh, want to keep, uh, keep in touch with you and, where is the best place to find your podcast? It's just search. It's my instruction manual is the podcast. So it's, it's on, you know, yeah. uh, Apple podcasts and Spotify and everywhere else that, that, that you can find podcasts. And then um, to find my books and, and everything else, go to myinstructionmanual.com. Myinstructionmanual.com. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. I'm also going to post my personal New Year's resolutions in the show notes. So you listeners at home can keep me to task and I can hold myself to account this year we'll see how it goes uh but keith your book's been a really good start on that and uh let's keep in touch thanks jeff it's lucky hey guys if you're liking the podcast and want to help us out just a quick reminder to go to itunes leave us a review leave a comment, suggest some new people we should have on the show, topics you want us to discuss. And you can also do the same on Twitter. You can hit me up at at Jeff Grace. And otherwise, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.